Amen. Hey, thanks, team. I, I may have even risked cutting you off a bit early there because I want to get into it so that we can worship a bit over communion at, at the end. If you don't know me, uh, if you're visiting, welcome. My name's Josh. I get to, to do this here a, a lot of the time, which is a, a great blessing. And um, I just had a thought, actually. Um, we're continuing on with First Peter as a part of our Exiles series this morning. We really have an embarrassment of, of riches when it comes to who, who preaches uh, at Cornerstone. Chris O just did a masterful job last week, really helping us to understand something key. I think it was kind of paradigm framing, actually. When we began this series, and, and the word uh, subversive kept coming up, so we've been talking about living under Babylon, living under foreign empires, empires that are not God's empire. And... Uh, in a lot of the literature and the thinking around this theme, people use this word subversive. And we were, I, partic- I personally wasn't particularly uncomfortable with it, but there, were, there was the question, is to, like, can we live with that word? It seems a bit, um, people who might reach for the word subversive, uh, you know, I'm subversive, I think of someone maybe who has a bit of a chip on their shoulder, um, who's maybe doing something in the dark, a bit sneaky. Uh, but Chriso, uh, she talked about the subversive nature of being God's chosen people under, uh, under, under empire. And she sort of self-identified as subversive. And I thought, if Chriso is subversive, uh, then that's definitely the kind of subversive I think we should try and B, you couldn't find someone more, more faithful, uh, someone who's got sort of less to prove with her life, someone who is a servant, really. And so she helped us to, to think about how we can serve uh, the masters of empire, even though they might not share our values. She even took us to that difficult passage about wives serving husbands and um, Lots of people think that the dynamic that's going on there is wives who become Christians to husbands who don't share godly values. And, uh, boy, that's challenging but powerful too to think we, as a part of building God's temple, can actually submit to the powers of the world until we don't, right? Until we come to an issue where we're like, no, that's the line. And Chris, you did a great job. I don't know if she's here this morning, but thank you. Uh, the week before that, Graham gave us this great phrase, same empire, different time. Uh, same, no, same story, different. Same Babylon. <laughs> it just stuck. It stuck. I remembered it last night. Uh, same story, different Babylon. There you go. I just fumbled through that to make the point because I, I had it all the time. So same story, different Babylon. That There's always an empire. There's always a tower that is trying to establish human achievement in the face of God. And really, I mean, the whole first part of the Old Testament's about that. It's about people going, no, thanks God, we're right, we can do this. As Chris I mentioned last week, uh, those empires, they inevitably crumble, they inevitably fail. The only thing that we can really do that's of lasting value, the only thing that we can really live into, the only thing that can be built that will last is the temple of God. And God wants to build a place 
where he will dwell and be present amongst humanity in the lives of humans. So even more than a sort of physical structure, God's project is about building a place where he can live with people, with the people that he loves. So that was just to quickly catch you up. If you've missed any of it, go onto the podcast. You can find it at our website, Home Community World. I just thought it'd be worth mentioning that if you found it useful, uh, our podcast, whatever you uh, use as your kind of streaming app, uh, I would encourage you, and we've never done this before, but why don't you leave a review there? Because in the last year, the downloads and streams of the Cornerstone podcast have, have doubled. And um, we've, had, uh, we've had contact from people who have no connection to this church saying, oh, wow, uh, your, particularly this Exile series is really helping me. A friend of, I think, uh, Joy's daughter, who's a missionary and going through a bit of a hard time recently, said, hey, we've really been blessed by it. So I was blessed by Chris O, I'm blessed by Graham, Joy blesses us. There's so many people here who do such a great job. Um, maybe more people could enjoy that. So why don't you uh, sort of like us or give us a uh, a rating wherever you listen to the podcast and if you don't you should listen to it because it's good so we're basically wrapping up Peter today um, and I'm going to be in chapter four or thereabouts of first Peter there's a um a question that you sometimes come across uh if you're watching TV at the wrong time of the day or you like self-help books. And it's this question, what would you attempt today if you knew that you couldn't fail? Has anyone heard this question before? What would you attempt today if you knew that you couldn't fail? And uh, the originator of this idea, uh, this this question, it seems was a, a preacher in the United States in the 1970s uh, who had a TV show that was probably on at the the sort of time or on the channel that uh, you would also find Anthony Robbins or whoever. uh, Whoever's going to tell you how to live your best life now. This is kind of the space that that preacher was in, Robert Shuler. And and he used to put this idea out there in his uh, show which was called The Hour of Power. It's a good good title, um, The Hour of Power. But it's an interesting question because it helps us to kind of think about maybe some of our ambitions or desires that are kind of pushed down a little bit, maybe that live in the basement of who we are. And if they live in the basement there, I think it's because what this question acknowledges is that we are sometimes afraid to do those things which we really want to do, right? Um, and particularly we're afraid of failing, whether that's because we're like a type A personality and we can't bear the idea of not being able to do what we want to do, or whether it's because we're sort of afraid that there might be some sort of public dimension to to our failure. Um, But it's playing on this idea that maybe you could be doing something that you really want to do, but you're not doing it because you're afraid. I'm maybe a little more familiar with this question. What is the least I have to do 
not to fail. No, that's not an insight into um, my personal approach to life. Never. I've never asked myself that question. But as a teacher, I get asked it quite a lot. Maybe not explicitly, but it's implicit in the interactions that I have with many of my students. Uh, Basically, so how many times, like what percentage of the lectures do I actually have to show up to? Um, And how many words, like, do I have to say on the forums? Like... uh, you know, you know what you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, and I think this is a is a is a kind of common uh, question in our psyche as human beings. And basically, the subtext of this question is: Well, I've got other priorities, right? So where I am, this might be deeply disappointing to to many of you, but Bible college students, they just want the piece of paper. Sometimes it would seem I don't know what they think it's going to. Uh, <laughs> going to do for them. <laughs> um, maybe I was a little bit uh, sort of utilitarian myself when I did my education degree. I was just wanting that piece of paper so that I could afford to be married to Sharon because she's got really expensive tastes. And I thought uh, being a high school teacher will uh, help her to live all of her dreams. <laughs> We're just going to be rolling in those dollar bills. Yeah, I mean, it's gone down from there, really, hasn't it? (laughs) Now that I've got a Bible college piece of paper, wow. That's where the real money's at. The real real treasure is there, though. We're getting there. So it's kind of saying, yeah, I guess we've got to do this, but I'm just going to do as much as I have to to scrape through. C's get degrees, uh, some people say. Not me. Uh, I always shake my head when I hear that. But there is this idea, C's get degrees. I've got other priorities. I'll just do the bare minimum. I wonder sometimes if we might risk... Oh, boy. This is hard. If we might risk being a little bit like that about our faith, right? So what have I got to do to get into heaven? I I, I don't... You know, the crowns thing, I, I think I'll be happy there anyway. I don't need the mansion on the hill, just how can I, you know, get, get, it, get through? Seize, get heavenly access. Thanks, St. Peter. Yep, yep, I ticked the boxes. Uh, a bit of a, of a scary thought, but I think it's there. It's part of our psychology as humans, and it might be part of our psychology when it comes to our faith. And... This kind of jumped out at me, this idea, this week, reading the passage that we're going to read. And I'm going to grab the Bible. That's a good start for a preacher, isn't it? Got his computer open. Hasn't, opened, hasn't touched the Word of God yet. Uh, so I'll read. If you've got a Bible, you can read along with me from the beginning of First Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans or Babylonians, I'm going to say, choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. 
and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body. But you are to live according to God in regard to the spirit. I recognise there's some weird stuff (laughs) there. We're going to push through to the end of the passage here. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should choose whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should be not as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even um, as a gossiper. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Reading that passage this week, and there's a lot in there, and truth be told, we're not going to get to to a great deal of it this morning. But what jumped out at me was how my mind went straight to the not-to-do list there. Do not be involved with debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. And my psyche just kind of thought... Here's a checklist that if I tick the boxes of, I might just scrape in to heaven, right? Debauchery. I'm not sure what that is, so there's probably a good chance that I'm not doing that. Lust, well, yeah, come on. I mean, I'm only human, but I won't do anything about it. Drunkenness. I'm pretty good generally. I tend to cut loose at the office Christmas party, but um, that sees me out through the air. I don't remember saying anything that was really, you know, that bad. Orgies, well, yes, no. Uh, What are you suggesting there? Carousing. I looked up carousing and it's like partying, basically, like drinking and having a good time. Ditto what I said about the Christmas parties. And then detestable idolatry. Well, we've definitely got no statues in the house. I mean, we're not Catholics, right? So I'm good there. So I think I'm going to get there, right? I think I will just scrape in. Praise God. Let's leave it there. Uh, I mean, yeah, 
I'm assuming the rest of you aren't debauching and carousing. But anyway, we might just scrape in if we can tick off those items on the not-to-do list. What an impoverished view of what it is that God wants for us. I mean, I went there, right? That was that, I think that's in me when I read that passage. But what an impoverished view. If we think about uh, what Peter has been saying to us over the last few weeks, he's, he's set the bar much, much higher, hasn't he? He said, you are to be living stones in the temple that God is building, in his dwelling place. You're supposed to have the very presence of God flowing out of you. In fact, you're also going to be like priests in that temple. You're going to be living in such a way that that checklist is like the last thing that you'll think about. That will be assumed because your focus is on serving the presence of God in the world. The biblical vision uh, is so much greater, thank God, than the impoverished uh, inclination of my heart as a human being. First Peter also says in chapter 2, you were saved so that you could declare the praises of God who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So there's the not-to-do list that um, my heart goes to. But here is what Peter has been telling us that it's all about, something much greater, declaring the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So as I wrestled with this verse, I'm like, well, what do we do with that not-to-do list? I mean, you'd think it would be fairly important that God's holy priests, that his temple, isn't involved with that stuff. But how do I read that? It's kind of like a list in verse 3, those things, debauching, carousing, lusting. Uh, Verse 3 says this, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do or Babylonians choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. Then he goes on in verse 6 to say, For this is the reason that the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. So they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. And so that not-to-do list is actually all about living in the spirit as God does. Living for God. Living as stones in a temple, as Kings and priests who service that temple, who foster and guard the presence of God in the world, in our lives. And so what we're going to do this morning is just look at what chapter 4 has to say to us about living for God. Because it is so much more than just a not-to-do list. A not-to-do list is a part of it. But the world is not changed by people who are motivated by just scraping through. The presence of God is not going to come into the world by people who are doing the bare minimum, who are aiming at just scraping into heaven. That would be like 
the temple in Jerusalem being serviced by these priests who go to all this effort to be pure and God not actually living there. The point is the presence. The point is the presence of God. The point is the life of God. The point is not what we do and don't do. What we do and don't do only matters because of the presence of God. The reason that the priests in ancient Israel had to take such sort of measures to stay ritually pure was the presence of God because they were dealing with the presence of God. It wasn't because God loves checklists. It's because he wants to dwell amongst people. He wants to dwell amongst people. So the to-do list is important, but it is not the point. The point is the presence of God, to live in the Spirit as God does. And so I'm going to point to three things that help us to understand what it means to live for God from this passage. The not-to-do list is that bottom line there, living in the Spirit as God does. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit. But we can only really understand what that not-to-do list is about by looking at two other things that come through from this passage. The first is that we need, if we're going to live for God, to accept that being alive in the Spirit means dying to the body. Your translation might say flesh, and that's a kind of a a funny phrase that I'll unpack a little bit. But if we're going to understand the not-to-do list, if we're going to understand what it means to live for God, we need, First Peter tells us, to accept that being alive in the Spirit, so living in the Spirit as God does, means accepting the fact that being alive in the Spirit means dying to the body. The third point that we're going to look at is how it's all about living out of love. So we can understand that tricky thing about how we should live, what we should and shouldn't do, only when we think about it with regard to what it means to live out of love and what it means to accept that being alive in the spirit means dying to the body. Sounds like a good time. Living for God means accepting that being alive in the spirit means being dead in the flesh. Living for God means living in the spirit as God does. Living for God means living out of love. The alternative is to be a brick maker. It's to be part of a human project that builds a tower to human achievement. A tower that will inevitably crumble. The alternative means to say, well-paying job, check. Actually, I don't know how to, I haven't used a trowel in a while. Well-paying job, check relationship that makes me feel fulfilled, check. Car or boat or house that makes me feel better about who I am, check. Do you hear what I'm saying? Rather than saying, God, that chisel in your hand looks pretty scary, but here I am, a stone 
for the building of a temple that will never disappear. In 1 Peter chapter 3, which we didn't um, read this morning, it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. New Testament scholar Margaret Amer says this of the passage that we read this morning. For the author of 1 Peter, the distinction between flesh or body and spirit does not relate to two aspects of the personality, but two different ages in God's dealing with humankind. In the time of the flesh, people lived selfishly, competitively. In the time of the spirit, people lived selflessly and cooperatively. Until their baptism, these Christians, who were the recipients of Peter's letter, Christians of Asia Minor had lived according to the flesh in licentiousness and idolatry. In these behaviours, they had linked their lives not only to the old age of the flesh, which is passing away, which is a temple, uh, which is a tower inevitably going to crumble, but also to the environment around them of Babylonians, Gentiles, pagans, those who have not become a part of God's chosen true people. God's exiled people. So Peter's kind of saying there's two ways to kind of live. There's the tower way, there's the temple way. There's the flesh way, or there's the spirit way. And that, I think, helps us to understand the first point that I was suggesting we need to get our heads around if we're to live for God, that Living for God means that accepting being alive in the spirit means being dead in the flesh. There's this uncomfortable connection between life in the spirit and death in the body or death in the flesh. I don't know how much you know about the history of this place where we are. So here um, at Cornerstone, we're on Turbal country. Uh, I know there's some people in the room. Barry lives in Yugra country on the other side of the river. I'm sorry about that, Barry. Um, south of the river. It's a unfortunate. He's on the river, so, yeah, actually I'm secretly jealous. Um, and if you live a little bit further uh, north from here, as Sharon and I do in the Morton Bay Shire, you're on Gubby Gubby land. And we might not think of that history uh, very often, but it's not so long ago, actually, that uh, Europeans came to this country. And if you know why Europeans came to Turbul country, Yagara country, Gubby Cubby country, it's because uh, the British Empire had, I mean, it's an astounding idea, had thought it was a good idea to ship all their criminals to the other side of the world. So you'll know about that penal settlement in Botany Bay. You may know that the worst criminals from the penal settlement in Botany Bay were sent north to Moreton Bay. And um, they endured extreme hardship, the historical record would tell us, under the governance of Captain Logan out on St Helena Island. This is a place that you did not want to go. No matter how beautiful uh, it was to our First Nations people, um, no matter how beautiful it might be for us as we look out over the river or look west to the hills, 
this was the end of the world and a place you did not want to go if you're a subject of the British Empire. And a significant figure who was part of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly, John Dunmore Lang, was concerned actually about what was happening here. This island of hardened criminals, the worst of the worst, Captain Logan, who was a notoriously brutal man. And John Dunmore Lang said, with some uh, other sort of like-minded believers, we need um, not just to send the worst of our empire to that part of the world, to Moreton Bay, to Yuggera, Turbul and Cubby Gubby country. Something redemptive needs to happen here. In fact, it seems he was particularly concerned with the interactions between the worst of the British Empire and the First Nations people who lived here. Like That was not a good combination in his mind. And so they got together a group of people who, who birthed the idea of putting a mission here. And the mission uh, that they established, you might know, was up at Nunda, Zion Hill. There's uh, some parks and plaques up there that... Uh, commemorate the establishment of the first free settlement in this country, in this part of the country. Missionaries who thought, if there's somewhere where the empire is in great dysfunction that needs the, the light and the love of God to be present, we're up for it. So they said goodbye to the privilege of their positions in Europe. Uh, the first mob were Germans, actually, interestingly, coming up under an Anglican uh, in, in Lang, and they established that mission at Nanda. There's a picture of Zion Hill from the time of sketch. These missionaries were particularly inspired by a missionary move that came out of Germany, uh, a group of Christians called the Moravians. And the Moravians knew what it meant to be chewed up by empire. The Moravians were essentially exiled out of Saxony uh, under religious persecution and decided to, or sort of were forced to establish new Christian communities in Germany. And they were so on fire for God that they were probably the, the most sort of um, active missionaries that the world had seen in a long time. Their stories of young men and women from these Moravian communities who'd been booted out of Saxony, who were living in Germany, saying, we've got to take the joy that we have, the love that we have, the good news that we have as God's chosen people and exiles to the ends of the earth. Famously, there was two uh, young men uh, in, the seven, uh, in 1732, Johann Leonard Dober and David Nitschmann, who looked at what the European empires of the time were doing through the slave trade. They said, this is just not right. How are we using other human beings to build our empire brick after brick after brick, wresting them away from their homelands in West Africa? taking them to the ends of the world to make us rich. Didn't sit right with them. So they went to their superiors and they said, we want to go to the West Indies to take the good news of Jesus' love to African slaves who have been transported there. The story goes that they were told that they couldn't. 
There's no way that slave traders would get on board with some subversive Christians who are saying, we're going to get there, not because we are going to make any money from it, because we recognise that God has a love for these people. God has good news for these people. That it's not all about towers and bricks, that it's about temples out of which the living water of God, the life force of God flows. So they were told they couldn't go. And they said, well, we'll sell ourselves into slavery then. We'll sell ourselves into slavery. You can consider us Chattel. We will go to the West Indies as slaves. We will leave our people here. We will leave our culture here. The story is that as they were departing, uh, their community was down on the docks. They were on a boat, never to return. And they said, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. How powerful a picture this is of people who have accepted the fact that sometimes life in the spirit looks like death in the flesh, death in the body. Now, that's a high watermark. And, you know, I I, I don't know that anyone in this room will get there. But what we can do if we want to live for God is accept the fact that life in the spirit sometimes means death of some sort in the body. And that's why I love this little phrase that Peter includes in the letter just before he gets to the not-to-do list. He says, you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans chose to do. So he's saying the to-do, the not-to-do list is not so much a not-to-do list as a ledger. It speaks about the investment of our time. Now, there's lots of good reasons not to be debaucherous and carousing and lustful. But one of them is it's a waste (laughs) of time, a waste of the gift of life. When you could be choosing to invest your life in something eternal, something good, something beautiful, why would you continue to waste it on your phone, (laughs) on video games, on making more money than you need that you're not going to give away, on carousing (laughs) and lust, reckless, wild living and so forth? We understand the not-to-do list in relation to the fact that God is inviting us not to waste our lives building towers that will inevitably crumble, but to offer our lives to him as living stones against Christ, the cornerstone, will be built into a temple that homes the presence of God. The third point that I want to make here about what living for God means is that it's about living out of love. Verse 7 of chapter 4 says, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. I think sometimes I've imagined this as just you can hide your sins under the blanket of love. Like when people come over, 
and you push all the dirty washing under the bed. We don't actually do that, Cheryl, at our house, do we? Uh, actually, my mum tells a story. She's got an eccentric cousin. I wasn't planning to say this, but it's a funny story. Uh, and she <laughs> used to put the dirty dishes on the bed in the spare room and, <laughs> and cover it with a, with a duvet. And uh, she did it once uh, when some visitors were coming around and then forgot about it and her mother slept over uh, later that night. She, she said, Mum, you can go sleep in the spare room and her mother... Actually, it was a mother-in-law. That was what made the story. Her mother-in-law, who was always already like, who has my husband, my, my son married, goes uh, to the room to get ready and there's dirty dishes uh, on the bed that she's supposed to sleep on. That vibe. We wouldn't do that at our house. But it's not so much being able to just cover, you know, throw a blanket, throw the blanket of love over all the horrible things we do. It's that if we live our lives committed to God's project, being a part of the temple that he wants to build, the rest is taken care of, right? It comes out in the wash. None of us can live sinless lives. But we can be a part of the good work that God is doing. The not-to-do list is actually a ledger. And so these are the three things, and it's brief this morning because I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to have communion and spend some time worshipping. But if we want to live for God, we need to take up the challenge and accept that it's going to mean giving our life away to some degree, wrestling with the fact that to be alive in the Spirit means to be dead to some of the things of our flesh. To be living for God means to be living in the Spirit as God does. That we're not motivated by our earthly desires, but we recognise that we can be a part of something greater by offering our life to God. And finally, living for God means living out of love. Offering hospitality to one another, loving each other deeply using our gifts to serve others. So I'm back to this question. What would you attempt today if you knew you couldn't fail? First Peter helped me actually to see that there's a bit of a lie to this. I don't know if you've ever watched Australian Idol. There's some people who really want to be singers who shouldn't be singers. Maybe that's a kind of tower building. But if we offer our lives to God and we say, God, use it, we have the opportunity to be a part of something eternal, a part of something that offers life. And so I want to reframe the question for us this morning as we come to communion. I want you to consider how would you live if you truly believed that God can't fail. Because so often when we are building towers that will inevitably crumble, we're wasting our lives, we're doing it because there's a sneaky suspicion that the good news isn't true, right? If we really believed, there's nothing we wouldn't do to be a part 
of God's great plan to be a stone in the temple. Would you stand? I want to read something to you. I read it, um, I referenced it a, a couple of weeks ago. It's this vision that Ezekiel has of the temple in the eschaton at the end of time. It's echoed by uh, John in his revelation. It's a picture, I want to suggest, not of a building, but of the assembly of people's lives, people who have handed their life over to God, who have said, God, use me. I want to be a stone in this thing that you're doing in history. I want to lean up against Jesus. And Ezekiel speaks of this vision that he has of the temple, of God's people at the end of time. And he sees water flowing out of the temple in Jerusalem. Water that forms a great river. When it empties into the sea, it says that the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows and it makes the salty water fresh. So wherever the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore. From the Engedi to an Eglame, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of a great sea. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves will serve for healing. That's what God wants to do through you living stones in which he wants to dwell so as you come uh, to take the bread and wine this morning I want you just to 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 play it as you feel it actually sometimes we'll all kind of wait and eat and drink together but I want you to to listen to the spirit this morning If you want to go back to your seat and have a moment with God, asking yourself this question, do that. If you want to come out the front and stay out the front after you've got the elements and sort of help to lead us in worship or just um, help to create a sense of presence here, please do that. But we're going to spend a bit of time just worshipping and considering this question, how would you live if you believed that God could not fail? What's he going to chip away? What are you going to give to him? What are those futile brick-making practices that you need to leave behind? Can I get the ushers out here, please? They've um, done their hands. You can come out, grab a piece of bread off them uh, and dip it in the wine. If you'd rather uh, have your own cup, you can do that too. There's also gluten-free crackers there. I'm going to pray, then we're going to do it. Jesus, we thank you for the way that you point us to this great truth. That there is something eternal and good on the other side. Thank you for the way that you invite us into this. 
your living water can wash our sin away and we can be a part of that river of life that God wants to flow for eternity. Blessing, loving, bringing peace, healing, fruitfulness. There's an invitation this morning. If you've never actually decided to offer your life to God as a living stone, if you've thought that you were disqualified from that for some reason, maybe you thought it was about the not-to-do list. It's not about the not-to-do list. God's taken care of that. All you have to do is trust in Jesus, accept that he's died for you. Come into the water. Be a part of this temple that God's building. Thank you, God.